Matthew, 10th chapter. It's just when it starts talking to me that I've got to worry. Matthew, the 10th chapter. Last week, as we have been studying the life of Christ through the New Testament in a more or less chronological sense, we looked at the first four verses of Matthew 10, where Jesus, out of the number of disciples that were following him, chose 12 to be especially his disciples. In fact, the little phrase, the twelve, from this point on, becomes used as a sort of a title for these twelve men. Matthew, the tenth chapter, verse five, we now continue by looking at what happens next. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor a scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat or of his food. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go from there. And when you are come into a house, salute it, and if the house be worthy... Let your peace come upon it, but if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Last week, we saw that our Lord called twelve to be, in a special way, his disciples. It is a surprising choice. Number one, surprising that he would choose anyone. We think of Christ's work as just that, Christ's work. Didn't need us. When he said it's finished, it was finished, is over. What does he need us for? And yet we see here that our Lord is pleased to choose and use men in his work, in the extension of his kingdom. And then not only the choice is surprising that it's made it all, but the recipients of this choice. As we said last week, you know, there's always that kid when the kids are out choosing up teams in the playground at school, there's always that kid that nobody wants, you know. He always winds up in right field. You pray that nobody ever hits it out there because he couldn't catch it if it were. And uh, in a sense, all 12 of these choices are all those, there are 12 right fielders. This is the riffraff. This is not like a president who who chooses the brightest and the best to surround him, to be his cabinet, to be his advisors. This instead is God, Christ, his son, taking the lowliest of material, the riffraff, if you will, lowly fishermen, tax collectors, the, the, the variety, the sheer variety. On the one hand, Matthew, a man working for the Romans. On the other hand, this fellow Judas, who is working against the Romans, a zealot trying to cast off Roman rule. But we see here in our text this morning, starting in verse 5, 
that Jesus sends out these men on what we might say is their maiden voyage. He sends them out. They're going out to represent him in the cities of Israel. And I want you to notice that a change takes place right here. Note between verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, it's 12 disciples. In verse 2, it's 12 apostles. Do you see that? We switch from disciples to apostles right at this point. Because the very word apostle means one who is sent out. And that's what's going on in our text. In verse 5, they are now being apostolized. They're being sent out, if you will. Not just sent out, but sent out with a message. Sent out as the personal representatives of our Lord. Now, it is not exactly the most ambitious mission you've ever seen here. It is rather limited in its scope. It reminds me of Gideon. We think of Gideon, you know, the fellow put the fleece out, how God used him in that great victory to drive out the Midianites that had invaded the land, said his number, they were like grasshoppers, and Gideon kept God whittling him down until he only had 300 men in this great victory. Well, well, that's not Gideon at the beginning. At the beginning, let's face it, folks, Gideon was not marine material. This guy was not a self-starter, if you will. He needed lots of work, lots of help. And the very first mission, do you know where God sent him on his first mission? It was to attack his father's house. His father had this big idol out in the backyard, and it was to attack his father's house. Now, that's not exactly the largest mission that Gideon's going to be involved in. It's the first one. It's the beginning. And there is this sort of principle that it's he that's faithful in the little things that God's going to use in the big things. David, you remember, before he fought Goliath, had also fought the bear and the lion out watching his father's sheep. Well, we see the same thing here. This is a very limited mission, limited in its scope, limited in its duration, limited in its objectives. And there are, to be quite honest, several things that are mentioned in our text that are quite limited to this unique situation of the apostles. In other words, it would be difficult for us to take all of these words and apply them to ourselves in our day, in our situation. It's the apostles that were sent out, look at verse 8, to heal the sick, raise the le- uh, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. I mean, this was one of the signs that would follow the apostles. And indeed, later on, Peter and Paul would raise the dead. So you understand there are some things here that are unique and peculiar to the apostles, to the twelve themselves. But there are some principles enunciated here in this text that concern all disciples of all ages. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What is it to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And you say, well, preacher, I can hardly care less. You know, I don't want to be a disciple, I just want to be a Christian. Well, may I remind you that in the book of Acts, we read that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Disciples is what they were. Christians was just a nickname, just a tag. If you're not interested in being a disciple, what you're telling me, you're not interested in being a Christian. You say, well, I just don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be one of those gung-ho types I just want to, you know, I don't have to have a mansion next door to our Lord and glory. A little cabin out in the back 40 would be just fine with me. Well, my friend, we're not talking about the spiritual elite. We're talking about anyone who would follow Christ time and time again in the lives of our Lord. He would say, if any man will come after me 
And what he means by that is, whoever would be my disciple, he must do these things. What you're seeing here in our text is simply a description of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're seeing it. We're seeing these principles applied to the unique situation of that day, of the twelve, given this limited mission out into the cities of Israel, but they're principles that apply to any of us. I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we go on this morning. And the first of those principles is, a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who obeys Jesus Christ. I want to go, duh. You know, like we never thought of that before. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to do what he tells me to do. Well, that's it. You got it. If you will notice here in verse 5, these 12, Jesus sent forth and what? Commanded them. Commanded. You, you know the word. It's what we parents do to our kids. Doesn't work, but we do it. It works a little better in the workplace where the boss can withhold your paycheck if you don't do what he says. They command works even better in the military when the sergeant commands you. You understand the word. Here our Lord commands. He's not suggesting. He's not saying, boys, why don't y'all look around, see if y'all can find something to do. Occupy yourselves. He is commanding them, giving them a direct order. Do this. Now, it is only in our day and time. This crazy, I was about to say 20th century, but I guess we've left the crazy 20th century. Now we're in the crazy 21st century. It's only in our modern time that anybody would somehow think that you could be a follower of Jesus Christ and not following. A disciple of Jesus Christ and not obeying. But we live here in what we call the Bible Belt where these ideas, as you well know, there are scads of people. I don't know how many is in a scad, but how many there are. There's scads of them out there who claim to be Christians. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you have a hope of glory, a hope of going to heaven when you die? Oh, yes. And they show absolutely no evidence at all of obedience to Christ. I mean, you know people like that, and I do too. We live in a day where there are some religions that think of Christianity only in the sacramental sense. You know, I go to Mass, I go to the confessional, I do what I'm supposed to do, I I pay my dues, I'm in good standing with the church, and that's going to do me fine. doesn't affect how I live out here in the world, but I do my religious duty on Sunday, and that takes care of it. And then we have others, even in evangelical circles, that have developed a whole doctrine around the idea that they're sort of two levels of Christians. There's this first level of Christian that you're going to heaven, you're saved. You may not look like a Christian, act like a Christian, but you're really a Christian. After all, you responded to the altar call, you went forward, you're saved. Now, you really ought to be working towards getting to this next level, a spiritual Christian, a re- you know, the one that looks and talks and acts like a Christian, but that's optional. I'm saying only in our century could somebody come up with something like that. How in the world can you read the New Testament and be left with the opinion that somehow obedience to Christ is optional? That you can be his disciple, but not obey. Let me just show you in the book of Romans. And as you're turning there to Romans chapter 1, just remember so many of the warnings Jesus himself says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? In fact, I'd rather you not even refer to me as Lord if you're not going to obey me. I mean, it's a sign of mockery. 
for you to say, boss, boss, and then throw everything he gives you in the wastebasket, right? That's an insult. And so Jesus says, don't call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say. Romans chapter 1, and I'm just pick Romans out here as an example. In verse 5, by whom, Paul writes, by Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. This thing called the gospel is not for you to simply have some sort of notional faith. That you nod your head. You, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Do you believe this? Yes, I do. Do you believe He rose from the dead? Yes, I do. It's not just a notional kind of faith. It is a faith that exhibits itself, manifests itself in what you do and how you act. It is for the obedience to the faith that God sent Paul out as an apostle. Do you see what I'm saying? I may be whipping a dead horse here, but let me just go on a little bit. Romans the sixth chapter. Romans sixth chapter. Look at verse 17 as Paul describes conversion here. Romans 6 verse 17. But God be thanked that whereas ye were the servants of sin, ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Notice you just didn't believe it in your noggin. You obeyed it from your heart, that form of doctrine that was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Once you consigned yourself to be the servant of sin, now you have obeyed the gospel and you are now the servants, the obedient servants of righteousness. You do not practice sin anymore. Kenny read that verse just earlier today in Galatians chapter 6 after giving that long list of sins there, the works of the flesh. Paul writes, don't let anybody deceive you. They who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, only in this century could somebody come up with the idea that you can practice all those things and still go to heaven. In Romans 16, the last chapter of this little letter, Romans 16, in verse 25, he talks about this gospel that was hidden. Now it's made evident and manifest. Romans 16:25, verse 26. 16.26, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known unto all nations, what? For the obedience of faith. Do you understand what we're saying here is that true saving faith, as James tells us, is not a dead notional thing. It is a thing that is alive in the heart that produces obedience. It produces a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I Okay, I probably stayed here too long. I mean, I feel like I'm in kindergarten here. If you don't understand this, a disciple is someone who obeys the Master. Right? That's about as simple as it gets. That's what we learn here. Obedience is enjoined and expected by Christ on His disciples. Now, let's look at that obedience. A disciple, secondly, is someone who goes where he's told to go. Did you notice verse 5 again? He says, don't go into the Gentile cities. Don't go into the cities of Samaria. Verse 6, but do go to the cities of Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I remind you, this is a peculiar mission, a limited one. 
It's the first mission that he's sending his disciples out on. After his resurrection, he will send them out again. And this time, he'll say, go into all the world. All nations. Preach the gospel to every creature. But you'll notice that here, the objectives, the scope of this mission is rather limited. You go here, you don't go there. He doesn't just send them out and says, now boys, just go out there and see if you can find somebody to listen to you. and Just go fly by the seat of your pants. Just do the best you can. He sends them to a specific people and expects them to do that. Now, do you understand then to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that we go where he sends us? Right? I mean, this is not brain surgery, folks. We go where he sends us. If we're his disciples, we go where he says go. We don't go where he says we not to go. Now, I realize that in our circumstances, sometimes God sends us out yonder. Sometimes he tells us to stay put. He did that in his ministry. The Gadarene maniac, you know, wanted to follow him, says, let me go with you. Jesus says, no, you stay right here. You go home and tell the people here what great things God has done for you. There's times that God would have you. You may be a Christian all your life and never live five miles from where you live when you was born, for all I know. Others of you may be like me. Man, it seems like everywhere the Lord sends you here, there, there and everywhere. The Lord may send you across the oceans. You say, but Brother Mark, if I become a Christian, uh, will I have to go to Africa as a missionary? I don't know, but you've got to be willing. That's the disciple of Jesus Christ. He goes where Christ sends him. It, it's been remarkable to me in times past that was just sort of understood. I remember the story of those Moravian missionaries leaving England. They had asked the plantation owner who owned one of the Caribbean islands, had all these black slaves on that island, if he would allow them to come into his island and to preach to those slaves. And he said, I will allow no one on my island but my slaves. So they came back and says, what if we became your slaves? He says, under that condition, I'll let you come. And so these two young men on the dock, on board the ship, sailing away from the dock, waving goodbye and goodbye forever to their families, to their friends, yelling from the railing of the ship, He is worthy. He is worthy. My friend, that's what people have done before. I remember the missionaries that went into the country of Cameroon in West Africa. The first missionaries, out of the first 90, 88 died. Two survived. The average lifespan was two and a half years. When they took their stuff on board the boat to go to Africa, they shipped coffins with them. That's how other people in other days understood what it was to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You go where He says go. You stay where He says stay. Again, elementary. That's just what's involved with having a master. A master who commands us. And secondly, you'll notice here that they are not just to go. In verse 7, He says, as you go. They're to take something with them. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are to carry a message with them. 
In fact, if we think back in the early chapters of Matthew, this is exactly what Matthew 4 said Jesus and John the Baptist were doing in their ministries. They were preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the very same message that Christ had been preaching is now the message that his disciples are to take with them. Now, you also remember that this little phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is sort of a shorthand way, a condensed way of describing the whole preaching that Jesus had been doing. For instance, the whole Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you summarized it, what is it teaching and preaching? It's preaching the kingdom. That's how Matthew 4 describes Jesus' preaching. So in other words, they're not just to walk into town and, and yell at the top of their lungs, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and going down the road. But they are to come and to announce that the king is here, the kingdom is about to be established, and to proclaim the principles of that kingdom, just as Christ had been doing in his preaching. They go with his message. Jesus does not say, now boys, go out there and y'all come up with something that people will believe. See what y'all can originate, you know. See if y'all can have a dream or a vision or go, you know, go tell them. Give them some of your opinions. Uh, he sends them forth and says, I want you to go and tell them exactly what I have been preaching and teaching. And therefore, they are called in other places of the New Testament, his ambassadors. They carry his message. And my friend, that is the Shall we say, we think of good preaching as that which keeps us awake. Come on. <laughs> keeps us awake, keeps our interest. Interesting, not boring. You know, that's good preaching. May I say, good preaching is that preaching that communicates as clearly and precisely as possible the Word of Christ, the message of Christ. I mean... If a telegraph boy, we don't have telegraph boys much anymore, but a telegraph boy shows up at your door. I really can't, I don't care whether he hands me the message, whether he sings me the message, where he reads me the message. But I tell you what I don't want, I don't want him to tamper with the message. I don't want him to walk up to my front door and say, well, you know, they're probably not going to like this. I think I'll just scratch this out. You know what they'd like to hear? I believe I'm right. I don't want him editing, adding, deleting. I want him to deliver the message. My friend, that's the job of a disciple of Jesus Christ. He conveys the word, the message of Christ, as clearly and precisely as he possibly can. And then thirdly, well actually this is fourthly, he does it as he is told to do it. You see, he first of all, he obeys. That's the disciple. He goes where he's told. He takes with him the message. And thirdly, he is doing it a particular way. Much of the instruction here in verse 8, you'll see, is through these signs that he is to go and do these things. And I want you to notice particularly. And again, these things have a special reference to them, I'll admit. But notice what he tells them to do. Heal the sick. He doesn't say, go shoot all the evildoers. Go bomb all the idolaters. You know, he's not sending them out as terrorists. He sends them out to heal. To cleanse. Raise the dead. 
You, you get the picture here? That's what Jesus did when He came to town. I, I think too much we have the idea that in order to be a good Christian in our day, we've got to go hate everybody. You know, bring down a little wrath from heaven upon the evildoers. And I want to say to you and to me that isn't that exactly what John and James, the son of Boanerges, did when they, you know, that Samaritan village wouldn't receive Christ. And they say, well, you want us to call down fire from heaven on them like Elijah did and consume them? And he says, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man isn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You see, this is a mission of mercy. It's a mission of ministry and, and kindness and, and grace. That's to be understood that you're not only to do what I tell you to do, but you're to not march into the town square, proclaim this gospel of the kingdom, and then say in their next breath, and I hope you don't believe it, and you all go to hell. But you're there as my ministers on a mission of mercy, salvation. Oh yes, there'll be judgment, but that's not your business, and it's not my business. That's in the hands of God. Judgment's coming. You don't have to worry. He'll get it right. He'll, he'll not be unequal or partial in His judgment. He knows all the facts. You and I don't. Don't worry about it. Vengeance is in the hands of God. He'll repay. But in the meanwhile, we're here on a mission of mercy, kindness, love, grace. And with these, I realized I hadn't raised the dead lately. I've woken the dead sometimes here in church on Sunday morning, but I hadn't raised the dead in a long time. In fact, never. There are some things here that are those peculiar signs that accompanied the ministry of the apostles themselves, you understand. And yet at the same time, what's the general gist of it? Go do good. And then notice, they're to do it as they're told. The last part of verse 8, he says, Freely ye have received, freely give. We come into town to proclaim a message of free grace. Do you understand what that means? It is a free gift of grace and mercy that God offers to men. Does it make sense that I'm to go preach the free grace of God and charge you $10 a head to hear it? Isn't there something just a little bit incongruous about making men pay for what should be free and what you yourself has have freely received? I mean, I think of the apostles. They've got some pretty lucrative gifts. Healing. Cleansing. Raising the dead. Don't, don't you just suppose it crossed their mind? You know, we could put up a shingle on the door and we could go into business, you know. I mean, we got the palm reader right across Goodman Road over here. Well, can you imagine, you know, John slapping up a little shingle on the door? Uh, you know, lepers healed here. Small charge. In other words, we can make this a money-making operation. Don't you suppose that ever crossed their mind? And yet Jesus here is forbidding them. He has given them this miraculous power. And he says, boys, I don't want you to ever forget. It didn't cost you a thing. I freely gave it to you. Now you go out and freely exercise it. What you have been the free recipient of, go pass it along and pass it on at free charge. We have tried as a church to practice that. We... Uh, 
we have tapes of our Sunday morning messages. We have people ask me all the time, how much do they cost? I say, don't cost a thing. They're free. And they look at me like I'm crazy. If you want it, you can have it. Now, if you want to pay us, we have a lot of people that want to help and, you know, help out with the expense. I mean, we know these things cost. Well, that's fine if that's what you want to do, but it's not necessary. We're fixing to adjourn here in a little while. We're going to go back here in the back, eat a meal. It's free. Now, we passed the hat, or actually the basket, but that's just voluntary. If you want to chip in something, most of us understand, well, it costs something to do this, and we're willing to help out, but it's not necessary. It's free. Nobody's going to think any worse of you. You don't put it, nobody even knows who puts anything in there. You understand what I'm saying? That's the principle. You would be amazed at how many invitations I get to go speak somewhere, and the first thing I'm asked is this. How much do you charge? How much do you charge? Now, first of all, I'm amazed that anybody would even think that a preacher like me would ask anybody, you know, first of all. But secondly, I am amazed that that is the expected practice in a lot of places in our country. And may God help me that I may, as Paul says, minister without charge. Now, you folks look at me and say, yeah, well, we pay you a salary. You know, we're, well, that's true. And I'm certainly appreciative that you, you support what you have freely received. This grace that came to you didn't cost you a nickel. Now, you go pass it on. You proclaim it and you do it freely without charge. In fact, he goes on to say that not only this is how you're supposed to do it, but you are to, in fact, to trust that God will provide your needs. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that what follows here is a list of prohibitions as to how they go. They're to go, and they're not take any money with them. In fact, they're not to take two staffs, two shoes, two coats. Well, two shoes, yeah, I mean, shoes you got on, but two pairs of shoes. You would say, okay, does this mean if I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to do it without charge, free, then I better be independently wealthy before I go? That right? I mean, I, a guy's got to live, a guy's got to eat, right? And I'd better make sure that I've got all of my food supply and all of my needs taken care of. I've got them right here in my suitcase. That way I don't have to charge anything to anybody. But after all, the fellow's got to have shoes on his feet, got to have a coat on his back, right? I mean, doesn't this make sense? We realize the necessities of life. So doesn't it make sense that if I am prohibited for doing this for pay... Then, then I better stock up ahead of time. And notice what Christ is forbidding them to do, that very thing. No, you go with what's on your feet, what's on your back. You cannot ask for money, but you go and God will provide. And he will provide how? Through his people. He says, go into the village and ask there who's worthy. and They'll put you up. They'll take in. He is teaching his disciples that God will provide their needs. And nine times out of ten, he will provide it not by hitting the lottery, not by being able to turn you know, water into wine or something a little more lucrative than that, rocks into gold nuggets perhaps, some miraculous means. In fact, God will provide the needs of his people through his people. You'll notice that he says here that the workman, in the last part of verse 10, is worthy of his meat, of his food. 
there is the tendency among those who preach the gospel, and it's a great stumbling block to many, to think that they're, uh, you know, we're just on the dole here. After all, we're dependent upon God's people to provide, so we just sort of fell like with his hand out all the time. And Christ is teaching his disciples, no, that's not the way it is. You are my workman. I will, I'm a good master. I'll see to it that my workmen are fed and clothed and taken care of and given shelter. And my friend, I'm here to bear testimony to the fact that I have traveled all over this country and never once has God failed to provide my needs. Homes all across this land have opened their doors to me and I'd love to think it's because I'm such a wonderful fella. I'm so gifted and talented, so such interesting house guests, you know. But the truth of the matter is that nine times out of ten, they've never met me before. they never even heard of me before. But they know this. They know I came preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of their love for him, they love me. That's how it works. So here Jesus is telling his disciples, you go and you go where I tell you to. And you go preach it without charge, but don't take anything with you. Trust me. Depend on me to provide your needs. And then lastly, in verses 12 through 15, do what you do authoritatively. Authoritatively. My friend, I do believe with all my heart that the most important thing going on in Memphis today is not down at Tom Lee Park, not on Bill Street. The most important thing that goes on in Memphis today happens in his church. It's this business. Anything less is a demotion. Anything less is beneath us. It's interesting that Luke's account, as, as he sort of gives them instruction as to what they're to do, Luke, Luke's account says, don't salute anybody. Don't, don't greet anybody on your way. And, and when you get to this house, you stay there. You don't go from house to house. And man, that seems strange to us. But I've read people who are familiar with the Arab world, with the Arab mindset. And they say that you have to understand that sometimes these guys would greet people and they would give salutations and blessings that would last for half an hour. I mean, you'd never get to town, never get anywhere. You'd meet these guys, you've got to stop and bless their fields and bless their cupboard and bless their wives and their children. And what Jesus is saying is what you're doing is too important. You don't have time for that. He says, don't go from house to house. The Arabs put a great deal of stock in hospitality. And out there, those caravans in the desert, they see a stranger coming and they yell, I got him, I get him first. And he wines and dines him the guest a while, and then they pass him on to the next guy and the next guy. And the guy spends all night going from tent to tent, feasting. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't have the time for that. It's too important. And so it is that those directions make sense when we understand that heaven and hell is hanging in the balance here. And that this is not just a matter of going to town and hope they'll like you and hope they'll like this Jesus that you're preaching But if they do not receive this message, or I should say you understand, he who receives you receives me. It's my message. I'm sending you out. You're going out under my auspices, my authority. You're taking my message. He that receives you is as if he has received me. And he that despises you, Luke's count says, despises me. Mm. 
I uh, tell people, they ask me, you know, all these situations, they're out here across the country, can't find a good church to attend. And I say, well, as best you can, you find God's man and you go listen to him. You sit under his ministry. But there's a responsibility, an authority that comes along. If he's preaching Christ, then it's Christ that's being presented to you. It's not just me. It's not my ministry. It's not that Mark wants me to do this or tells me to do that. But if I am truly exercising my office as a pastor, I am setting Christ before you, His commandments. And when you hear me, you are hearing Him. In other words, there's a difference between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Mark. I hope you have to sit in judgment of that fact you understand. To weed out what is me. To judge what is Christ and what is the human instrument. But I'm simply saying, you'll notice here that he is not saying that what happens out there, boys, just give it your best shot. It's really not going to matter in the long run. He says, no, it's going to matter. If they won't receive you or your ministry, your message, why, you wipe the dust of that place off your feet. Don't let the least thing cling to you. That's amazing. I remember Roth Barnard and his ministry across the south one time. He got run out of some church. They asked him to leave. Said, you can preach one more sermon. That night he walked in, didn't say a word, just walked up to the pulpit, reached down, took his shoes off, got his handkerchiefs out, sat there, shined his shoes, put his shoes back on, walked out the door. Last they ever saw of him. Well, that seems pretty abrupt. But that's what Christ is saying. Don't even let the dust of the place cling to you. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that, that, for that place, for that city. Do you understand what he's saying? Heaven and hell is hanging in the balance here. What you do, you go and you do it authoritatively. You're speaking for me and there are eternal consequences that will be the fallout of that ministry. Now, I just point out, by the way, as a way of an aside, there is sin worse than homosexuality. There's something worse than sodomy. As bad as that was in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's something far, far worse. And that is to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, after saying all of this about a disciple, and we've, we've said a lot, he obeys Christ. He goes where Christ tells him to. He does what Christ tells him to do. He takes the message Christ gives him. He does it like Christ tells him to do it. He does it in the authority of Christ. Let me come back around full circle now and ask you this question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Which is just another way of saying, are you a Christian? Are you going to heaven? Those are all synonymous terms. If not, this morning, would you be his disciple? I'm quoting there when I ask that question. Quoting from John chapter 9, where there was a man who was born blind that Christ healed. He was brought into the synagogue, grilled, 
And these men kept asking him, who was this man that did this to you? Of course, he never saw Jesus, you understand. He had had some spittle wiped on it, or clay wiped on his eyes and was told to go wash. So by the time he got to the pool of Siloam and washed, Jesus was long gone. He never laid eyes on Jesus till after the fact, till after all of this, when Christ met him in the temple. So they're asking this man who's been healed of his blindness, well, who was this man? Who was it? And how did he do it? And, and they kept asking him over and over again. And, and it's funny, this man says, why, why are you asking me all of this? Do you, would you be his disciple? And of course, they're insulted. Oh, you're his disciple. We're Moses' disciple. But notice, what was it that made this man think that maybe they were wanting to be this man's disciples? Well, it's the fact that they were asking him, who, who is it? Who did it? And, and how did he do it? They wanted to hear of Jesus. And they wanted to hear of his works. And so in this man's mind, he's naturally thinking, well, they want to hear all of this because they must want to be his disciples too. Well, he was dead wrong. But I say to you that that's one of the signs of people who want to be the disciples of Christ. They want to hear of Jesus. They can't get enough of hearing of Jesus. They want to hear of his works. They want to hear of his grace, of his mercy, of his kindness. They hung up on him. That's a good sign. It's a sign somebody just might want to be his disciple. Might just want to leave everything and follow him. Might just want to turn everything, the steering wheel of their life, over into his hands. Would you be his disciple? We're going to have a wedding Saturday. Miriam Kenny getting married. So I'm not picking on you, Miriam, but I've told the young ladies here many times before, I said, you know, if you're going to get married, but you don't want to be seen with your husband, don't want to be associated with him, you know, don't want to wear his ring, the sign that you're his wife, you know, I'll be your wife secretly behind the scenes, but, but I won't want to see, be seen in public with Do us all a favor and call this thing off right now, up front. You know, if you say, well, I, yeah, I guess I really, I, I think I'm really, but I don't want to commit myself publicly. May I say the same thing is true with the disciple of Jesus Christ, one who would say, yes, he's my Lord, he's my master, I love him from the very depths of my being. I commit my life into his hands, but I don't want to be known as his disciple. I would not take his sign Upon me that identifies me with him. The sign of baptism, by the way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is it any different? Saying, well, yes, I want to serve him. I want to follow him. But not publicly. I don't want anybody to know it. Wouldn't want to be, you know, known as his. And so it is, my friend, if you would be his disciple. What did we say? The very first thing a disciple does. He obeys the master. What's the initial command that he gives us if we follow him? What did he tell the disciples? Go ye into all the world, teach the nations, baptizing them. In other words, if they're not willing to take my sign, that sign that identifies them as mine upon them, then we have every reason to doubt and question whether they are truly his disciple 
at all. And my friend, if you would not take that sign upon you in a friendly environment, publicly in front of people who love you and would pray for you, my friend, how long do you think you're going to last out there in the world in a hostile environment, refusing to be identified with Christ? No, it just doesn't work that way. His people take the sign of Christianity upon themselves. They publicly proclaim themselves, I am Christ's disciples. The truth of all of this, the fact that Jesus is who he said he was, is seen in the proof, the outcome of all of this. Who would have thought? As we say, who would have thunk it? Take 12 guys, pick them up off the street in downtown Memphis. Never send them to school. I mean, you talk about an undereducated, underachieving, undercapitalized. I mean, down the list we go. Here, you know, this, you say this thing is doomed for failure. And yet Jesus sent out those 12 men and they shook the world to its foundations, to its core. And we sit here today reading the gospel of one of those men, Matthew, who left us this account. Who in the world? Do you understand what I'm saying? That Christianity's proof is in its success, in the fact that, yes, it works. It accomplishes. And what other explanation can we have but that which was the confession of early Christianity? Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus was Lord, used to be our Lord when he walked upon the earth. He is our Lord. The Jesus who was dead is risen from the grave, sits on the right hand of God. He is my Lord, my Master. The same one who gave them the power then gives us power now. He goes forth with his people. He empowers his people. He succeeds in his people. What other explanation can there be? Let's pray. Father, help us today to magnify Christ in all that we do. We who call ourselves disciples, we who call ourselves servants, may we be so indeed, in fact. Lord, help us to magnify and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, there may be those who are wavering this morning. Those who think that, Father, they can be your disciple. They can be Christians and yet not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Not be publicly identified with him. Lord, may you bring the the issue, make it plain, make it crystal clear. That there can be no riding the fence. Lord, help us in all of that. Lord, if there's one here who today is wrestling with these issues, would your spirit come and overpower them? Take away the obstacles. Remove all the mountains that they would fall on their face and profess and confess that you are Lord. May they do it publicly. May they do it openly according as the sign that you yourself have given. May you bless us, Father, as we seek to remember you and all that you've done for us. What a, what a master that we follow. The one who gave himself for us. The one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. Father, it's a burden to follow Christ. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard. 
Lord, when we think of this one who loved us so, we would say that this burden is easy. This load is light. Thank you for the privilege of following Christ. Thank you that we're counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. For it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.